want to learn how to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture, well, learn with us at the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ Center and Clear podcast, where we discuss seeing and sharing Jesus from all the scriptures. And as with the last episode and the next several, we are going to be hearing from a conference that we recently held in Dallas, a conference that we held where we thought about Christ in the wisdom literature. Uh, and this week uh, on the podcast, you're going to hear from my brother and co-host, John Aiken. Uh, John uh, talked to us in this conference about seeing Christ in Proverbs. John actually did uh, his PhD work on seeing Christ in Proverbs. He's written commentaries on this in a, in a book as well, uh, talking a lot about uh, the, the kind of the royal nature of Proverbs, but he, he dives into even more. And so you'll want to hear uh, what he had to say again as we think about seeing and sharing Jesus uh, from the book of Proverbs. All right. Well, we're going to be in Proverbs. You can go there, but we'll, we're going to kind of be moving around to a couple of different spots. So I want to, I want to maximize our time. There's a lot I could say about the book of Proverbs, but as a pastor and preacher, Proverbs presents kind of some unique challenges. A lot of pastors, as I was growing up, gravitated toward uh, Proverbs because, and it, they probably wouldn't say this out loud, but the, the implication was Proverbs avoids some of the deep theology of like a book like Romans, and uh, it just has really helpful, practical application. And that's what people want, right? They want you to preach practical messages that are going to be helpful for them. And so a lot of preachers gravitated toward preaching sections of the book of Proverbs because uh, this, uh, this is immensely practical. So we're going to do a, a, a money series or a relationship series or use of the tongue series or whatever it is because they want to be really practical. But when we talk about, like even what Dad just talked about, expositors have a really difficult time figuring out what to do with the book of Proverbs because you can't really, I mean, you could maybe, but it's difficult to preach verse by verse through the book because of the way that it's arranged and it looks kind of random and there's just so much repetition. And so that's a challenge. And then if you're wanting to be a gospel-centered preacher, then the issue is that it seems like it's really just a collection of moral advice. Like there's a lot of do in the book of Proverbs and not a lot of done. You know, there's, it, it lacks the salvation historical themes, even the things that dad was unpacking in Song of Solomon, where you've got the garden imagery and Exodus imagery and shepherd imagery and all, like a lot of that is, is missing from the book of Proverbs. And so it just seems like this collection of moral advice abstracted from the gospel. And so how do you preach it in a gospel-centered way. And that's a legitimate concern, not just in terms of wanting to interpret the book correctly, which we want to do, but in terms of just pastoral shepherding of your people. Um, if, you, if you preach messages that are abstracted from the gospel, it's going to cause all kinds of issues. And this uh, approach to Proverbs, one pastor called it Israelite Dear Abbey, right? It's just, or like Israelite Delilah After Dark. It's just you know, hey, you're struggling with this. Well, here, maybe you should try a couple of these things, and it's going to help your life go better. This is how you win at life. But the problem is that doesn't transform people. I remember when the first church I pastored, I was 25 years old, was preaching a message from the book of Proverbs on the use of the tongue. And I got done, a guy came up to me 
who I knew was an unbeliever, uh, was a lost man who had just been visiting our church. His wife wouldn't come with him. And he said, Pastor, that was a great message today. Uh, man, I'm, I'm determined I'm going to do better in the way I talk to my wife. And then left, and I'm like, that's great, but you're still going to hell. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't help if you're going to hell, but you're just going to try to be a little nicer to your wife. And that's why I didn't want that to be what the book of Proverbs was, kind of the impression it was giving. And so I really started to dig in to this question, can Christ be preached from Proverbs? And that's what I said. All of my, um, all of my doctoral study was mainly focused on this. So how do you preach Christ from Proverbs? I do think all the verses we want to point to, Luke 24, uh, John 5, all of those different ones. For me, one of the most controlling verses for me when it comes to being convinced of Christ-centered hermeneutics is 2 Timothy 3.15. When Paul says to Timothy, from childhood you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He's referring to the Old Testament. And so what is the point of Genesis and Song of Solomon and Leviticus and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job is to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and then to equip you. So, it, so Proverbs is meant to save you and sanctify you. Uh, that's what the book is about. So Christ can be preached from Proverbs and Christ should be preached from Proverbs. The question is, how do we do it? Now, in my studies, I think we've mainly seen uh, I've mainly seen two approaches, okay? And, and so those two approaches can be described in two, in two different ways. It, it's either uh, people arguing that Jesus is wisdom or that Jesus is, so he's the wisdom in the book of Proverbs or Jesus is the son in the book of Proverbs, okay? So these are the two approaches. And, and one approach, Jesus is wisdom. This is the Goldsworthy approach okay, is reading Proverbs back through the lens of the cross, okay? And so it's, it's taking the cross, and then it's, and then it's going back to uh, read the book of Proverbs. So it's, so it's looking back through the lens of the New Testament, which I think is a perfectly uh, acceptable, uh, you know, hermeneutic is to say, uh, as talked about earlier, progressive revelation and so forth. And so Jesus is First Corinthians. He is the wisdom of God for us and righteousness and sanctification and, and, and all the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him, Colossians. You know, so, so this is a perfectly appropriate way to do this. Wisdom, this woman wisdom is presented in the book as a personification of Solomon's wisdom and of ultimately God's wisdom that created the world. And so that's who Jesus is. And if you want to be wise and if you want to be able to live out what the book of Proverbs is talking about, then you need to embrace Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. Okay, so it's a perfectly acceptable way to do it. In that, in that commentary that you guys picked up today, I do a lot of that um, in, in the commentary, okay? The second approach is to see Jesus as the Son that's being referenced in the book, and this is more of an attempt to read forward toward the cross, okay? This is... This is letting Proverbs develop themes that are going to find uh, culmination in the cross of Jesus Christ, okay? And that's, that's really where I want to focus uh, our attention this morning, uh, is that reading Proverbs is presenting a hope for a messianic king who will fulfill the wisdom of the book. And that's, and that's what Proverbs is intentionally doing. This is a lot of what I've worked on in my dissertation. There's a... Um, 
a guy in uh, Europe named Guillaume Davies who's done a lot of work on this. Um, and, and so that's what I want to just look at with, with, our, with our time this morning. And here's my argument is that Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, is a training manual for kings. Okay? The book of Proverbs is a training manual for kings. Proverbs is Solomon training the prince to be the ideal king who ushers in the messianic kingdom. Okay, Proverbs is Solomon training the, the, the crown prince, the Davidic prince, to be the ideal king who ushers in the messianic kingdom. So a couple different things um, to, to walk through there. One, uh, the book of Deuteronomy equates the keeping of the law and the keeping of the Torah with wisdom. Okay, so listen to what... Uh, Deuteronomy 4, verse 6 says, Keep them and do them, talking about the law, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Okay, so Deuteronomy 4 and verse 6 equates the law and wisdom. So what Proverbs is, what wisdom is, is the daily living out of the covenant that God made with Israel. Okay? It's daily living out the covenant. Or, or one scholar says it's, it's, it's looking at life through the lens of the covenant. All right? Now, you have in Deuteronomy 6, God's command to parents to teach the law to their children. Right? When you get up, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. So you have Deuteronomy 4, 6, the law is wisdom. Deuteronomy 6, teach the law to your kids. Deuteronomy 17, which is the kingship law, says that the king, when he ascends to the throne, is to, first thing he's supposed to do is to write out a copy of the Torah so that he learns to do it, not depart from it, and his dynasty, whether or not his dynasty is established in the land, depends on him being a man of the law. Okay? So what Proverbs is, is Solomon doing Deuteronomy 6, okay? He's a dad teaching his son the law for the purpose of Deuteronomy 17 so that his son will be a man of the law and establish the kingdom, okay? That's what, that's what Solomon's doing. And um, I think that the historical context uh, of the Bible shows that that's what's going on in 1 Kings 1 and 2 when David is getting ready to depart and Solomon is getting ready to ascend to the throne. David spends those chapters telling him, obey the law, follow the law, embrace the law. And then what happens? Uh, when he's asked by God, what do you need? He says, I want wisdom so that I can rule this, your great people. Okay, I'm, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that, you know, I don't have knowledge of good and evil, and I need to be able to rule this, your great people, and so I need wisdom. Okay, so historically, law and wisdom go together, and that's what a king needs in order to establish the kingdom. Prophetically, uh, the context of the Bible shows us that the, the messianic hope, according to Isaiah chapter 11, let me read this. Okay, the messianic hope, according to Isaiah 11, is a future king. And this is, I think, this hope is bolstered by the fact that all of David's sons failed at it. But the hope is there's a, there's a Messiah, messianic king, son of David coming in the future. And here's how he's described in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The, the Messianic king is described in Isaiah 11 as the embodiment of the book of Proverbs. Okay, He is the one who fears the Lord, who is anointed by the spirit of wisdom and understanding and, uh, and so forth. And so there's this historic context. Kings need law and wisdom to rule and establish the kingdom. There's the mess, there's a prophetic context, which is this is what we're hoping for in the future because we've not had it yet. We need a king who's going to embody the book of Proverbs. And so that's what Proverbs is doing. I'm going to show you how it's doing it um, here in just a second. But Proverbs paints the picture of an ideal king who lives out the law and thereby establishes an eternal kingdom. And Solomon's attempting to train his son, the Davidic prince, to be that king. And Solomon's failure and then Rehoboam's failure and all of the failures of the sons of David contribute to that hope that one day in the future there will be one who does that. And then here's the bottom line. The final form, the final form of the book of Proverbs, at least as best we can tell, because uh, the latest thing that we're told is that uh, the collection, Solomon Collection 2, which uh, starts in, in Proverbs 25, was collected by King Hezekiah's men. Okay, Hezekiah is a contemporary of Isaiah. So, so the final form of the book of Proverbs, at least as best we can tell, is being put together under the inspiration of the Spirit by whoever the editor is in the same time that these, that this, these prophetic promises about a, a future king who's going to embody wisdom is happening. Okay, so, he's, so, he, so the editor is collecting these things in such a way and drawing on these themes uh, specifically. And that, that's, that's the argument of the book. And it's not, Proverbs is not just a random collection, okay? It is a book, all right? And so here's, here's how this is playing out in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has a clear structure that everyone agrees on, okay? There's seven divisions in the book of Proverbs, all right? And so there's the, there's the prologue, which is chapters 1 through 9. There's Solomon Collection 1, uh, which is about 10 through 22. There's the sayings of the wise. There's further sayings of the wise. There's Solomon Collection 2, sayings of Agur, the sayings of Lemuel. There's, there's a sevenfold division structure to the book of Proverbs that everybody agrees on, okay? Here's why Nate's going to preach later from Proverbs 9. Uh, wisdom's house has seven pillars, the temple, uh, the Greek translation of the, uh, of the building of the temple says it has seven pillars. Okay. And so, uh, this, this house of wisdom, uh, and you know, is kind of pointing to the book of Proverbs as a whole sevenfold structure. That's what, uh, everybody agrees on that. There's no, there's no disagreement among scholars that that's the structure of the book. Not only does it have a clear structure, it has a clear introduction and a clear conclusion. Okay, which means that there's a strategy going on. There's something that the editor is trying to do. Okay, clear introduction is chapters one through nine, the prologue, chapters one through nine. The clear conclusion is a, is a pair of prophetic oracles at the end of the book, uh, Proverbs chapter 30 and Proverbs chapter 31. I'll show you how those function here in just a second. And Proverbs has a clear dramatic structure, okay? So Proverbs in a lot of ways, uh, and I would encourage you, if you have small kids, um, there's a book written by Peter Lightheart called Wise Words or something like that, where he, it's a series of fairy tales that he's, fictional fairy tales that he's written based on the Proverbs, okay? So if you have small kids, I run with my kids, they're, they're, they're pretty good. Um, but that, that, that clear dramatic structure is this kind of like, the generic fairy tale of 
a young prince who goes out into the world to find himself and to find his bride and to grow up so that he can come back and take over for his dad and become king and, and the, you know, the kingdom lives happily ever after, okay? That's the structure, that's the dramatic structure to the book of Proverbs. What, what, what Proverbs is doing is trying to show how the son, okay, the prince, moves from point A to point B. Point A is he's young, he's naive, he's simple is the word that um, Solomon used. So he's a young, naive prince, and he wants to move to being a wise, well-married king. That's the structure to the book. Moving from point A to point B, from young, naive prince to wise, well-married king. All right? Um, Proverbs 1 through 9, the introduction is basically Solomon introducing his son to two women. Okay? There's woman wisdom, and then there's woman foolishness, or the strange woman. And he spends nine chapters urging his son, marry woman wisdom, reject woman foolishness. Okay? That's what Proverbs 1 through 9 is about. He's got to choose between these two women who's going to be his bride. At the end of the book, okay, what comes at the very end of the book of Proverbs? Anybody know? Poem about the Proverbs 31 woman, right? The noble wife. So at the end of the book, we see that he's chosen well, right? He's chosen wisdom as his queen. And so chapters 10 through 29 are the strategy to move from A to B. Okay, how he gets there. And so this implies that Proverbs has a goal. There's, there's something that is being done. It's moving in that direction. Now, again, the question is, who is the son that Proverbs is talking about? And as I'm arguing, is it, it's the prince. It's not every man. Okay, it's the Davidic prince. You say, well, John, I thought that wisdom was kind of like, you know, folksy and familial and it's, you know, it, it, it applies to everybody, and it's, it's egalitarian, and it's, you know, it's, it's just like, when we think of wisdom, we think of like the, the pithy two-liners, right? As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool to his folly. You know, it's just a creative way to say, you know, fools repeat their same mistakes over and over. And then like all these things that we see in the book of Proverbs, that's what we think of. We just think of like homespun, practical, familiar wisdom. Why in the world should I see this as being... To address to the king and the prince, and why should I see it as royal? Well, there's several reasons um, why I would say that, okay? Uh, five reasons. I'm not going to write these on the board, but you can, um, you can take these down. I'll try to be clear. The first is ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature was always about court wisdom, okay? Ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature was always about court wisdom, even in the Bible, right? Wisdom is described in the Bible as training uh, Joseph, for example, to rule in uh, Pharaoh's court, training Moses to rule in Pharaoh's court, that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar is doing this with the exiles, uh, you know, with, uh, Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah uh, and Mishael, that he's, he's training them so they will be successful civil servants. That's what, that's what wisdom is about, okay? Not only in ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature, but also in the Bible. Second, the canonical context tells us that wisdom is what is needed to make kings reign. First Kings 3, Solomon asks for wisdom. Proverbs 8, 
Woman wisdom says, it's by me that kings reign and make their decrees. Uh, Isaiah 11, the Messiah is going to be the embodiment of the book of Proverbs. Okay? Uh, third reason is, who's the dad in the book? It's Solomon. Okay? These are the Proverbs of Solomon. The only other person that, that's really identified by name that's doing instruction in the book is the queen mother in Proverbs 31, Lemuel's mother. The queen is instructing her son, the king, about ways that kings need to conduct themselves. And then the fourth thing would be to say, we, we've got to make a distinction between where did these sayings originate and what was the purpose for which they were collected. Okay? Because it's possible for them to have originated in the home or originated in some kind of folksy manner but they were put together with a specific strategy by this editor under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay? They're collected for a specific task. And who's collecting them? Solomon, Hezekiah's court. I mean, that, it's kings, it's royals who are doing it. And so what are they doing it for? Go to Proverbs chapter 1. It tells us exactly what they're doing it for. In the purpose statement here in Proverbs 1, verse, start verse 2, go to verse 3 to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings. And then listen to this phrase, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Okay, That phrase, when it's put together, righteousness, justice, and equity, is not talking about the whole spectrum of holy living. It's, it's a technical phrase that refers to the art of government. Okay, Righteousness, justice, and equity is talking about art, the art of government, the skill, the skill of governing. That's what this, this book is meant to do. So it's a training manual for kings. And what you see is, as you work through the book, you're going to progress from, just like any other education, you're going to progress from the ABCs to the more complex and the more, uh, you know, the, the, the more specific. That's, what, that's what's going to happen. You're going to go from a generic education, here's the basic things that you need to know and to learn, towards um, this specific, at the end of the book, when you get to 28 and 29 and so forth, these specific uh, kingly instructions that are being given. And so we see this uh, progression from the book. Uh, one, one scholar put it this way, that you see a career path, okay? I, I don't know if it works out exactly, but there's, there's some helpfulness to this scheme. Uh, chapters 1 through 9 are the youth about to enter into the world. Okay, so he's growing up and he's about to go out into the world. 10 through 15 is him entering the world. 16 through 22 is him operating as a magistrate, trying cases for the first time. Uh, 22 through 24, he's a courtier in the court. 25 and 20 through 27, he's an advisor to the king. And then in 28 and 29, he's the king in waiting. And so you have this progression from simplistic to complex, from general to specific. Okay, and the illustration uh, that Davies uses when he talks about this, and I, I've not seen the show, and so I'm, I'm assuming that he's saying, he's, he's a Brit, so I'm assuming what he says is accurate, is that he uses an illustration from the show The Crown, okay, that's on Netflix, and to show the difference between some modern concepts of education for royals and then the, what Proverbs is doing. In this specific episode he's mentioning, Elizabeth when she's younger, is frustrated by her education because um, she's only really receiving 
specific instruction in constitutional theory, and she's not being taught literature and science, and so she's boring at dinner parties, all right? So she's, she's not able to be well-versed and to talk on a number of topics because she only has this specific education. At the end of the episode, she's able to face down Churchill when he's trying to violate the Constitution because she's been given this specific education. Uh, but what, what David is saying, the Bible would say the opposite of what the crown is saying. The Bible would say, yes, the king should not just be a specialist in government theory. Rather, the king must first be the ideal Israelite. Okay? You can't be a good king or leader if you are not first a good father, a good son, a good friend, a good neighbor, a good husband. Okay? If you're not the type of person who, who are those things, good parent, faithful spouse, true friend, speaks the truth, then you have no business running a country. And so you're progressing from ideal Israelite who, who's able to do all of this homespun wisdom to somebody who's able to try cases, uphold justice, and establish the kingdom. Okay? Now, uh, just a few, few more minutes. What happens, though, is we don't actually get the progress that we expected. Go to Proverbs chapter 30. So, so we, I've pointed out to you the movement of the book, right, from young, naive prince to wise, well-married king. And we don't actually get the, um, the progression that we had hoped for. Look what the Bible says starting in uh, Proverbs 30, verse 1. The words of Agur, son of Jachai, the oracle, the man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Okay, now you get to Proverbs 30, and it's a, it's a massive disappointment. He says, I've not obtained it. I've not, I've not arrived. I've not gotten there. And he uses a specific phrase. He says, I have not, I, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. That phrase, knowledge of the Holy One, is used one other time in the book of Proverbs. It's used in Proverbs chapter 9, okay, this is when he's given the, and Nathan's going to preach on this later, when he's given the two invitations to marry woman wisdom or to marry woman folly, and in that chapter, in the, in the section between the two invitations, he says this in Proverbs 9 verse uh, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is inside. And he gets to the end of the book and he says, I've, I've, I've missed it. I don't have it. I've, I've failed. We expected him to progress in wisdom, but he didn't. And we shouldn't be shocked by that because Proverbs 1 through 9 is framed negatively. It's not framed positively. It, it starts the first time we're introduced to uh, woman wisdom. What does she say? You refuse to listen to me. So I'm going to laugh when calamity comes upon you. It's the first thing that she says. In Proverbs chapter 9, wisdom does not have the last word in Proverbs 9. Folly does. He walks past woman wisdom's house. He goes on towards woman folly's house. She is given the last word before he goes out into the world. And so we have every reason to think that the son does not choose well. He does not choose rightly. We shouldn't be shocked by this. Proverbs 1 through 9 is, is framed almost as like an autobiography of the life of Solomon. Wisdom is said, like, you choose wisdom, it's better than gold, it's better than silver, and it's more valuable than all these things. Solomon, at the beginning of his life, recognized that, right? He didn't ask for riches, he didn't ask for power. 
He asked for wisdom. And God says, because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you all these other things as well because you asked for wisdom. But then what does Solomon do? Solomon falls for the exact woman that he's warning his son about, the strange woman, the foreign woman, the exact same Hebrew word that's used in 1 Kings 11 to talk about the women that Solomon marries that pull his heart away from God. He becomes an idolater. Okay, and that's not, again, not a shock. Proverbs 9, where is woman wisdom's house? Where is woman's folly's house? At the high places. Okay, where are the high places? Where you go to worship gods. Okay, and so, and so Solomon chooses the strange woman and he chooses idolatry rather than choosing wisdom. And his son, Rehoboam, what does he choose? He chooses foolishness rather than wisdom. He listened to the peers that he grew up with rather than listening to the elders of Israel. It splits the kingdom and the dynasty is, is ruined and the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7 looks like it's in jeopardy. This is all about Solomon here in Proverbs and his son that uh, he's the one who chose wisdom and he got all of these treasures because of it. But in the end, he rejects the covenant relationship with the Lord and he chooses the one thing that he was asked not to choose, which is foolishness. He goes after the strange woman. And so he's trying to train his son, but his son doesn't learn the lesson either. And you get to Proverbs 30, and the, the son says, I've blown it. And then this is what he says in verse uh, 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. We get to the end in Proverbs 30 and Proverbs 31, and there's finally hope for a son who will choose wisdom as his queen and establish the kingdom. Okay, and Proverbs 30 verse 4 says, we haven't found him yet, but if this is going to happen, there's got to be a son who, who is able to both ascend into heaven and to come down. Okay, we read this from a, his dad's Iceberg illustration was great. We read this from a different vantage point than the first years. They didn't know the name of the son who came down from heaven. We do, right? Jesus is God's son who came down from heaven as wisdom for us. Goldsworthy says, Agur's question in chapter 30, verse 4, is directly answered by Jesus to Nicodemus in John 3, 13. So he's the one who has come down. Even though the original readers didn't know the name, they were confident in the Messianic promise, which you do have in Proverbs 30, verse 5. That is actually a quotation of earlier scripture. Okay? The author of Proverbs 30, whoever uh, Agur is, is quoting from 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-one, which is the, the song of the deliverance of David, where he reiterates God's promise to David. And he says what? Every word of God proves true. So we, so David at the end of his life is saying, God, you're going to keep your promise to me. Agur at the end of Proverbs says, you know what? We failed, but God's going to keep his promise to David. This is going to happen. And then you get to chapter 31 and you're introduced to a son who chooses rightly. At the end of the book, um, we see four things at the end of the book, all right? Two, here, first, first is this. 
we're given two prophetic oracles. You look there in chapter 30, verse 1, it says the words of Agur, the oracle. Chapter 31, verse 1, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. That's the same Hebrew word that's used for prophetic burden. Okay, so these are presented as prophecies. This is what's going to happen in the future. Okay, what's going to happen in the future is that we're expecting there's going to be a son who chooses wisdom. That's what's being presented in chapter 31. And then here's the second thing you see. When she says to her son, let's read there, starting in verse 2. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women. Okay, same thing that Solomon said to his son. Your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and so forth. When, when King Lemuel's mother calls her son there in verse 2, my son, it's, the only, it's one of only two times in the entire Old Testament that my son is written in Aramaic. It's written in Aramaic. It's not written in Hebrew. You know the other time that my son is used in the Old Testament in Aramaic? Psalm chapter 2. Today you are my son. I have begotten you. It's the very phrase that Mary would have uttered to Jesus when she called him my son. So in Aramaic, at the end of the book, we are introduced to a son who is not going to make the mistakes of the former kings, but who is going to choose wisdom. And what is his name? We're not ever told in the entire Old Testament about a guy named Lemuel. Okay? Go read Chronicles. Go read Kings. We're never introduced to a King Lemuel. You know what King Lemuel, you know what that name means? The one who belongs to God. And guess what? He's got a mother who's instructing him, and there's no dad mentioned at the end of the book. And so we're finally introduced here in Proverbs 31 to a son in Aramaic who they're hoping is going to do the right thing. The king in Chapter 31 is a different guy from chapters 1 through 29. This is the king that the prophets and Proverbs have hoped for. And we are introduced to him in Luke chapter 2, the son who grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man, one who is greater than Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean? Just, I'll just say this real briefly. What does that mean for our, our preaching? How do we preach him week in and week out? In, in many ways, you should appro approach Proverbs like you would approach the law. Again, Solomon's doing Deuteronomy 6 for the purpose of Deuteronomy 17. And so Proverbs presents God's standard for living. And we're told over and over again, the result of falling short of that is an irreversible death. We fall short of that standard, but we have a king who meets it and who fulfills it. And even though Jesus lives this out perfectly, he dies in the place of fools he walks away from that irreversible death, giving to those who believe in him forgiveness for their foolishness and new life to be able to walk in wisdom. As you're going to be doing that a lot in Proverbs and saying, this is God's standard. Here's how you fall short. Here's how Jesus kept it in Christ. Here's how we can walk in the wisdom that God is giving to us. And we need it. Okay? In Christ, the Bible tells us, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 and 10, right, that... that, that 
Uh, you are worthy because you were slain and by your blood you have purchased men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them kings and priests and they will reign with him on the earth. We are, as one preacher said, right now in Christ, we are interns training to be the future kings and queens of the universe. And so if we're going to do that well, then we need the wisdom of Proverbs. It's a training manual for kings and for queens. But we can't be good kings and queens in the age to come until we are first good sons and daughters, good husbands and wives, good fathers and mothers, good friends and good neighbors, good money managers, good people who can control their tongues and so forth. For that, for that we need the son Proverbs points to. We need Jesus of Nazareth. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for Christ and for who he is and for what he has done for us. And Lord, we thank you for the book of Proverbs and uh, what you have uh, revealed to us in this book. We thank you that it points us to Jesus. And Lord, we recognize we have no hope at being wise. We have no hope at understanding and discernment and avoiding foolishness without Jesus. And so Lord, help us to preach Christ from Proverbs so that in the age to come, we will be able to rule and reign well with our Messiah. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.